When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for this magical Christmas ride is TJ. Oh, hey. Merry Christmas, you guys. Merry Christmas. TJ just gave me her Christmas present, and I'm so excited about it because it was 60 batteries. I was going to say, it's batteries. (laughs) It's batteries. I'm the only person on the planet that's like, yes, batteries. She gets so excited about batteries. It's all she's wanted for her birthday, for Christmas, <laughs> and all she ever says anything is batteries. So batteries. I bought her 60 freaking batteries. Oh, <laughs> uh, Thank you so much. I should yeah. last us about 12 episodes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so at, at this exact moment when this is coming out, it will be Christmas Eve. So is it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Christmas Eve. I thought it was Christmas Day. I think it's Christmas Eve. Oh. Whatever the Wednesday is. Hang on. Let's hold solve. on, guys. We're gonna solve figure out what puzzle. day it is. Wednesday is Christmas Day. Christmas Day. It's okay. Christmas Day. All right then. Unless it comes out <laughs> before midnight. No, it's gonna come out on Wednesday at three p.m. So. Yeah, so it'll be Christmas Christmas Day. Day. Hooray! Huzzah! I like Christmas Day. Um, That's when we always, we we always opened up like one or two gifts on Christmas Eve and then the rest came on Christmas Day, so. I think a lot of people do that if you celebrate Christmas. Also, um, and I know we're going to talk a lot about Christmas, but I would also like to wish everyone out there a happy Hanukkah as well. And just a happy holiday season if you celebrate something else. Happy Kwanzaa. Yes, but for the purposes of this episode, because it comes out on Christmas Day and because of the topic, we are celebrating Christmas. Christmas. Christmas, Christmas time is here. Stop it. (laughs) I did that uh, totally in the wrong key, sorry. (laughs) Also, Whamageddon check-in, are you okay? I am still surviving Whamageddon. I am still surviving Whamageddon. I was treading on very thin ice today, though. We are still, we should say, when we are recording this, we're still about a week out from Christmas, so we could still get hit. We still could get hit, but we'll but post so it. far. We'll post our we'll post our facial reactions if we get hit. Yeah, just make sure if you, you if you do get hit, just to take a photo of your face and just go Whamageddon got me. And, but I was in Sephora and they had all the Christmas music on, so I I popped in my headphones and just listened to a podcast about Jonestown. Well, all right then. 
Yeah, it was like the least Christmassy Christmas thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. Yeah, well, so. I know you're very excited to find out who I have chosen for this very special Christmas episode. <laughs> who are we talking about today? <laughs> We're going to talk about Bing Crosby. That's so odd that you would choose that topic. I know, because he has nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever. No. He couldn't. It couldn't possibly be because he has like... I think the top Christmas song of all time. Ever. Ever. I think he's the top one. We'll find out if I actually got that in my research or not. <laughs> uh, it's been really, really crazy. And um, I did my best. <laughs> uh, I do want to mention, before the trolls get to me, or people get upset, that I left things out. So here's the thing. This is an abridgment, for the most part, on Bing. One, because I wanted to keep it to one episode. Two, I wanted to focus a little bit more, and I didn't do that much, but a little bit more on White Christmas, both the movie and the song, as well as Holiday Inn. Um, and a little tidbit of knowledge, dropping some knowledge on on y'all these are my future in-laws that come from this family so in deference to them I have opted not to include some of the more familial drama pieces um, because I'm not trying to start fights with my in-laws there are other podcasts that do cover stuff like this like Karina Longworth's uh, podcast you must remember this so if you want to get some of the more scathing stuff just get it from her well, and it's, there's a lot of back and forth. Like, one thing that you kind of realize when you're on the inside of this, and, you know, I'm not trying to be all like, oh, I'm an insider. No. But the behind the scenes, you start to realize that there are many sides to a story. There is a lot of speculation out there. There are a lot of rumors. There is a lot of information. Everybody has their own experiences around this within the family itself, too, so I'd rather just kind of leave it as it is and just talk about his professional life and his career. I respect because that. Because that's, I mean, realistically, oftentimes when we report on something that we found, we even put out there quite frequently, like, this is not our opinion. This is just what we found. And we don't try to speculate anyways. So I'm just staying even further away from all of that than maybe we normally would based on what we find in our research. So funny story, when I met Chip, my fiance, it was around Christmas time as well. Um, and so when he told me his name was Chip Crasby, in the back of my head, not ever out loud, but in the back of my head, I'm like, Haha, like Bing, <laughs> like, because it was Christmas time. Ah. <laughs> so then much to my surprise, a couple weeks later, when I learned that it was true, I kind of was like, wait, what? <laughs> no. Because, <laughs> like, what? No. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty funny. So, if you're not aware of who Bing Crosby is, I don't know if we can be friends anymore. But he was an American singer, comedian, and actor. He was born Harry Lillis Crosby Jr., on May 3rd, 1903, in Tacoma, Washington, 
in a house that his father built. Wait, what's his middle name? Lillis. Lillis. Where does that come from? I don't know. I've never heard that name before. Well, you might get a hint in a second. Okay. Okay. His father was Harry Low Crosby, and he was a bookkeeper. And his mother, Catherine, or Kate, Helen, nay Harrigan, Bing was the fourth of seven children. A lot of kids. Because they did not have contraception back then. Well, it was the early 1900s. It was a different time, (laughs) as we like to say. Yep. A different time. (laughs) I mean, his parents were born in the 1800s, so yeah. Yeah. I mean... Well, his so his mom was Irish American. Mm-hmm. His dad was Scottish, was part Scottish. So, fun fact: I'm starting the fun facts early in the episode, folks. Woohoo! Woo! Fun fact: an ancestor on his father's side, Simon Crosby, emigrated from Scotland to New England in the 1630s during the Puritan migration to New England. Holy cow! And another line through another line also on his father's side crosby is descended from mayflower passenger william brewster okay that's awesome isn't that cool i don't know when my grandmother came over but talking about like multiple so she was one of 13 so yeah yeah and she was born in 1912 so she's a little younger than bing would have been but yeah that uh, the it blows my mind when i hear like oh he's a descendant of the mayflower (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Holy cow. I mean, that was way, way, bah- you know, way, way back. But still interesting information. So without getting into too much, we just threw a fun fact in. In 1906, his family moved to Spokane, Washington, where he was raised. In 1913, his father built a house at 508 East Sharp Avenue. The house sits on the campus of Bing's alma mater, Gonzaga University. So how did he build a house on the property of the school? They may have moved it there. I'm not sure. I honestly don't know. <laughs> but it functions today as a museum housing over 200 artifacts from his life and career, including his Oscar. So that's kind of cool. That is cool. But I'm guessing they they had to have moved it unless or, the or, university built onto their property. That's, that's what I was going to say. Was maybe that like when was the like which which was their first, was it the school or was it the property, has since the school purchased up the land around there and since Bing was an alumni, did they preserve it? That kind of thing. Yeah, I have no clue. No clue. Anyways, moving on. So, you want to know how Bing got his nickname? I do, actually. There are two stories. So, on November 8th, 1937, after Lux Radio Theater's adaptation of She Loves Me Not... Joan Blondell asked Crosby how he got his nickname. His response was, well, I'll tell you. Back in the knee breeches day when I was a wee little tyke, a mere broth of a lad, as we say in Spokane, I used to totter around the streets with a gun on each hip. My favorite after school pastime was a game known as cops and robbers. I didn't care which side I was on. When a cop or robber came into view, I would haul out my trusty six shooters made of wood and loudly exclaim, Bing, Bing! As my luckless victim fell clutching his side, I would shout, Bing, Bing! And I would let him have it again. And then his friends came to his rescue, shooting as they came, I would shout, Bing, 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 Bing! Not the normal, 
pew, 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 right. pew. Right. Blondell replied, I'm surprised they didn't call you Killer Crosby. Now tell me another story, Grandpa. Crosby replied, <laughs> Crosby replied, no, so help me, it's the truth. Ask Mr. DeMille, who I'm assuming was also in this interview. And DeMille replied, I'll vouch for it, Bing. Wait, what DeMille is this? Like the DeMille? I'm assuming Mr. Huh? DeMille. Mr. DeMille. Huh. I don't know. I'm wondering which Seems DeMille about is. the right time frame. Yeah, it does. So, even though that was really fun... It would seem that story was pure whimsy for dramatic effect. And the truth is that a neighbor, Valentine Hobart, named him Bingo from Bingville after a comic feature in the local paper called the Bingville Bugle, which the young Harry liked. In time, Bingo got shortened to Bing. Hmm. So choose the story you like, I guess. But supposedly the, sec- the latter is the correct one. In 1917... Crosby took a summer job as property boy at Spokane's auditorium. And it's in quotation marks. I'm not really sure why, but it is. Anyways, he took this summer job as a property boy where he witnessed some of the finest acts of the day, including Al Jolson, who held him spellbound with ad-libbing and parodies of Hawaiian songs. He later described Jolson's delivery as electric. Crosby get... Crosby graduated from Gonzaga High School, today is Gonzaga Prep, in 1920 and enrolled at Gonzaga University. He attended Gonzaga for three years but did not earn a degree. I feel like I should be giving you a dollar every time you say Gonzaga. (laughs) Drinking game. (laughs) Give the kids some juice. As a freshman, he played on the university's baseball team. And later in the 1930s, his friend and former classmate, Gonzaga head coach, Mike... I got it. I got it. Gonzaga head coach Mike Pekarovich appointed Crosby as an assistant football coach. The university granted him an honorary doctorate in 1937. Today, Gonzaga University houses a large collection of photographs, correspondence, and other material related to Crosby. In 1923, Crosby was invited to join a new band composed of high school students a few years younger than himself at the time. I mean, as you recall, he graduated in 1923. I'm sorry, he graduated in 1920. Al Rinker, Miles Rinker, James Heaton, Claire Pritchard, and Robert Pritchard, along with drummer Crosby, so I guess Bing was the drummer at that point, formed the Musical Ladders, who perf- <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a mouthful, who performed at dances both for high school students and club goers. The group performed on Spokane radio station KHQ, but disbanded after two years. So they went from the ladders to the latter? Yes. Pun! It's my one pun for the show. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> it's really going to be hard if that's your one pun for the show. Ah, crap. <laughs> Crosby and Al Rinker then obtained work at the Clemmer Theater in Spokane, now known as the Bing Crosby Theater which I'll touch on when that happened later. Crosby was initially a member of a vocal trio called the Three Harmony Aces with Al Rinker accompanying on piano from the pit to entertain between the films. Bing and Al continued at the Clemmer Theater for several months, often with three other men, 
Wee Georgie Crittenden, Frank McBride, and Lloyd Grinnell. And they were billed the Clemmer Trio or the Clemmer Entertainers, depending on who performed. In October 1925, Crosby and Rinker decided to seek fame in California. They traveled to Los Angeles, where they met Rinker's sister, singer Mildred Bailey, who introduced them to her show business contacts. The Fanchon and Marco Time Agency hired them for 13 weeks for the review The Syncopation Idea, starting at the Boulevard Theater in Los Angeles and then on the Lowe's Circuit. They each earned $75 a week, which is $1.1,000 today. Oh, wow. 1.1,000? You mean 1,100? That's what I meant. I just wrote it weird. (laughs) (laughs) I just wrote it weird. That's a lot of money. That's a lot. I wish I was making 1100 bucks a week. Me too. Jeez. Yeah. As minor parts of the syncopation idea, Crosby and Rinker started to develop as entertainers. They had a lively style that was popular with college students. After the syncopation idea closed, they worked in the Will Morrissey Music Hall Review and honed their skills. When they got a chance to present an independent act, they were spotted by the Paul Whiteman Organization, After less than a year, they were now attached to one of the biggest names in show business. So less than a year in Hollywood. I just, I think that, that some people are just born stars. Some people just have that factor that they step into a room one time and that's all you need. Right. You know, and, and. Well, they step into the right room one time. (laughs) Yeah. I was just. Not saying that they didn't work hard. Clearly they did. Like, that's a lot of stuff that they did in that one year. But, well, you know. Like, an example of it is, because I've just binged The Good Place, she's on my mind, but the girl who played Tahani. Yeah. Like, that was her first job ever. Like, that she she auditioned for it, Jamil. and that was the first job. Yeah. She, oh, yeah. And she's incredible, and she just has, like, that it factor. And it seems like Bing worked hard at what he was doing and got into the right room and just bam like one year later well and sometimes it just works out that way other times I mean you're gonna hustle 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 before that big break I mean and like I say it seems like he is he's he's doing it he's not slacking off that's for sure hired for $150 a week in 1926 so that's about 2000 a week today (laughs) is that 2.0 Two point zero thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone. It's been a long week and it's only Tuesday. <sighs> I'm running on Diet Coke right now. Like, what do you want from me? <laughs> Hire so anyways, without the interruptions. Jeez. So hired for $150 a week in nineteen twenty six. Which is about two point zero thousand dollars. <laughs> I'm not gonna let you live that down. I know. I'm not gonna let myself live it down. I knew better. <sighs> they debuted with White Men on December sixth at the Tivoli Theater in Chicago. Chicago. Damn fine pizza. I heard my Minnesota come out there. Success with Whiteman was followed by disaster when they reached New York. Whiteman considered letting them go. And from context, I'm guessing because their style was more intimate and the New York theaters kind of swallowed up their voices. 
from context, and you'll understand in a second why I say that. However, the addition of pianist and aspiring songwriter Harry Barris made the difference, and the Rhythm Boys were born. The ad- oh, the names just keep getting better and better. Right? The additional voice meant they could be heard more easily in large New York theaters, which is why I say I think that their voices were just kind of getting swallowed up. So they're like, oh, this isn't going to work. Yeah, because here in California, really in the local L.A. area, we just have the Pantages and the Hollywood Bowl that do like those big shows. But like back then, they they wouldn't have had those sound systems. Yeah. So, I mean, I could see where the intimacy would be harder in... New York, where those theaters are just literally built for thousands of people. Right. And at the time that, and I'll get, I'll touch on this more because I did actually do a little bit about this. At the time, you know, the, those big vaudevillian acts relied on that belting loud voice to help be heard through those theaters. So even with good acoustics, you're relying on yourself. There was no microphones and sound systems then. So when Bing started his career was really just when all of that was just kind of starting out with the microphones and amplification. Got it. Yeah, we're moving into talkies now, kids. My 1930s radio voice is back. Oh, geez. (laughs) I'm not good with that voice. I try and it sucks, so I'm not even going to (laughs) bother. Well, doll, you're a singer, and I'm the cat's pajamas. It's my one talent. So anyway, Crosby. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys can't tell, we're a little loopy because it's Christmas. And And we're tired. And we're so tired. We've been hustling. Oh, man. So anyway, Crosby gained valuable experience on tour for a year with Whiteman and performing and recording with the likes of Bix Biederbeck, Jack Teagarden, Tommy Dorsey, Jimmy Dorsey, Eddie Lang, and Hoagie Carmichael, which I just love that name. Hoagie. Hoagie Carmichael. I love it. I do too. He matured as a performer and was in demand as a solo singer. Crosby became the star attraction of the Rhythm Boys. In 1928, he had his first number one hit, a jazz-influenced rendition of Old Man River. And in 1929, the Rhythm Boys appeared in the film King of Jazz with Whiteman, but Crosby's growing dissatisfaction with white men led to the Rhythm Boys leaving his organization. They joined the Gus Arnheim Orchestra. <laughs> they joined the Gus Arnheim Orchestra, performing nightly at the Ambassador Hotel. <clears throat> Crosby's solos began to steal the show, while the Rhythm Boys' act gradually became redundant. So, at this, around this point. It's important to note that Crosby married Dixie Lee in September of 1930. After a threat of divorce in March 1931, he applied himself to his career. And then you're going to see him as much as he has already done. This is when he freaking skyrockets into stardom from this point forward. And then we'll have more on the family later because I'm just going to summarize. Again, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I want to kind of keep this more about his career than about his family life. When Max Sennett signed Crosby to a solo recording contract in 1931, a break with the Rhythm Boys became almost inevitable. No! The end of the Rhythm Boys? What will the world do? I would have bought an album by the Rhythm Boys. Extra, extra. 
Read all about it. The Rhythm Boys break up. It's a blue day in Hollywood. But on September 2nd, 1931, Crosby made his nationwide solo radio debut. Before the end of the year, he signed with both Brunswick and CBS Radio. Doing a weekly 15-minute radio broadcast, Crosby became a hit. Ten of the top 50 songs of 1931 included Crosby with others or as a solo act. Holy cow. Yeah. That's a fifth of the songs from 1931. Huh. Crosby played the lead in a series of musical comedy short films for Max Sennett, signed with Paramount, and starred in his first full-length film, 1932's The Big Broadcast, the first of 55 films in which he received top billing. He would appear in 79 pictures total. Crosby was one of the first singers to exploit the intimacy of the microphone, and this is what I was talking about earlier, you know, coming back to that difference between the vaudevillian and then now with this microphone technique. So he is exploiting the intimacy of the microphone rather than using the deep, loud vaudevillian style associated with Al Jolson, who had been obligated to reach the back seats in New York theaters. Crosby elaborated on an idea of Al Jolson's phrasing or the art of making a song's lyric ring true. So for him, like the music was important, but also the lyric and the meaning intent of the song. Tommy Dorsey said, I used to tell Sinatra over and over, there's only one singer you ought to listen to, and his name is Crosby. All that matters to him is the words, and that's the only thing that ought to for you, too. In the framework, in the framework of the novelty singing style of the Rhythm Boys, he bent notes and added off-tune phrasing, an approach that was rooted in jazz. His love for jazz helped bring the genre to a wider audience. As music critic Henry Pleasance noted in The Great American Popular Singers, Something new had entered American music, a style that might be called, quote, singing in American with conversational ease. This new sound led to the popular epithet crooner. During the early portion of his solo career, which is, was about 1931 to 34, Crosby's emotional, often pleading style of crooning was very popular. But Jack Cap, manager of Brunswick and later Decca Records, talked him into dropping many of his jazzier mannerisms in favor of a clear vocal style. After signing a contract with Jack Capp's new record company, Decca, in late 1934, Crosby credited Capp for choosing hit songs, working with many other musicians, and most importantly, diversifying his repertoire into several styles and genres. Capp helped Crosby have number one hits in Christmas music, Hawaiian, and country music, and top 30 hits in Irish music, French music, rhythm and blues, and ballads. So he got to be very diverse through Cap's influence. So it's good. Which is interesting because you you listen to other stories about artists like Patsy Cline, where they were basically pigeonholing her into that one, you know, brand of music. Where they're like... I know you want to do this kind of music, but we're going to make you do this. So it's it's kind of refreshing that he got that much fluidity in his product. Yeah. But it's also a big factor of how he became so huge. His appearances, records, and radio work substantially increased his impact. The success of his first film brought him a contract with Paramount, and he began a pattern of making three films a year. He led his radio show for Woodbury Soap, for two seasons, 
while his live appearances dwindled. His records produced hits during the Depression when sales were down. Audio engineer Steve Hoffman stated, By the way, Bing actually saved the record business in 1934 when he agreed to support DECA founder Jack Capp's crazy idea of lowering the price of singles from a dollar to 35 cents and getting a royalty for records sold instead of a flat fee. Bing's name and his artistry saved the record industry. All the other artists signed to DECA after Bing did. Without him, Jack Cap wouldn't have had a chance in hell of making DECA work, and the Great Depression would have wiped out phonographic records for good. Which is huge. There was no TV during the Depression. You had music and you had movies. So you either went to the movies or you had your music. And that was it. That was that was your entertainment. Or, I mean, like, books. But, but per those things, like, you need that. Yeah. But then, like, agreeing to lowering the cost of your singles and agreeing to, you know, royalties paid out based on units versus a flat fee. I mean, that stuff, again, it makes sense why that would help at that time because people didn't have a lot of money and if you have a dollar to your name you're not spending it all on a single you're gonna go and try to help feed your family or exactly you know but 35 cents you might be able to treat you know yeah to bring home a little treaty treat because those things are important especially to a parent trying to you know, help gloss over for a family, for their kids to help, you know, ease those tensions at home for everybody and try to make something nice. Yeah. By 1936, Bing replaced his former boss, Paul Whiteman, as host of the weekly NBC radio program, Craft Music Hall, where he remained for the next 10 years, where the blue of night meets the gold of the day with his trademark whistling, became his theme song and signature tune. He had already been introduced to Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith before his first appearance on record. Crosby admired Armstrong for his musical ability, and the two remained friends for decades. Like, they were really close friends, according to Chip, and you can leave that in. Like, they were very close friends throughout the rest of their lives. In 1936, Crosby wanted Armstrong to appear in a screen adaptation of The Peacock Feather that eventually became Pennies from Heaven. Armstrong's musical scenes and comic dialogue extended his influence to the silver screen, creating more opportunities for him and other African-Americans to appear in future films. And I kind of cut this out, but Crosby actually really fought for Louis and his presence in that film when like some of the other cast members didn't want him in there and didn't want to, he really fought. And so it became a big opportunity for him and for other african-americans in future i mean at that at that point african-americans were like seen almost as a caricature Mm -hmm. in film because prior to that they weren't in film or there was a blackface yeah like actor in the minstrel shows and madrigals and like well you you spoke about al jolson i mean he he did the jazz singer and i love hearing stories about this because there are people that are fighting for diversity in film and god love it like yeah well and not only did he fight for armstrong to be in the film but crosby also ensured that behind the scenes 
Armstrong received equal billing with his white co-stars and treatment, honestly. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Armstrong appreciated Crosby's progressive attitudes on race and often expressed gratitude for the role in later years. Because it did. It opened up doors for him. It opened up doors for other African-American artists, both actors and musicians. Like, he was very progressive with all of that. Like, he didn't, he didn't exclude anybody. And if you're talented, he still, he admired you no matter what. I've come to the moment of smiles. White Christmas and Holiday Inn. Okay, I'm going to need you to stop making that face. It's kind of creeping me out. It's smiling? Yeah, but you almost have crazy eyes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've come to my favorite part of the episode. I'm going to talk about White Christmas, the song, and Holiday Inn. The biggest hit song of Crosby's career was his recording of Irving Berlin's White Christmas, which he introduced on a Christmas Day radio broadcast in 1941. The song was actually conceived by Berlin on the set of the film Top Hat in 1935. He hummed the melody to a stare and the film's director, Mark Sandrich, as a song possibility for a future Astaire Ginger Rogers vehicle. Astaire loved the tune, but Sandrich passed on it. When Crosby first heard Berlin play White Christmas in 1941 at the first rehearsals for Holiday Inn, he did not immediately recognize its full potential. Crosby simply said, I don't think we have any problems with that one, Irving. And they moved on. <laughs> the song appeared in the movie Holiday Inn, released because it was actually written for Holiday Inn. The film was released August 4th, 1942. And you would wonder maybe why that is the case. Because it seems like it would be a holiday movie and with White Christmas being so big. But I'll explain. So the basic plot of the movie is that Jim Hardy, played by Crosby, Ted Hanover, played by Fred Astaire, and Lila Dixon, played by Virginia Dale, have a popular New York City musical act. On Christmas Eve, Jim prepares for his final performance before retiring with Lila to a farm in Connecticut. Lila tells Jim she's fallen in love with Ted instead. Heartbroken, Jim bids them goodbye. The following Christmas Eve, Jim is back in New York City with plans to turn his farm into Holiday Inn, an entertainment venue open only on holidays, to the amusement of Ted and his agent, Danny Reed, who was played by Walter Abel. Danny is accosted by aspiring performer Linda Mason, played by Marjorie Reynolds. He refers her to Holiday Inn and Ted's club, and chaos and romance ensues. I really just, like, I don't want to give you the full plot. Like, no spoilers, guys. Pass. Oh, come on. <laughs> but because the Holiday Inn is open on every holiday, Berlin's assignment for Paramount was to write a song about each of the major holidays of the year. Because the Holiday Inn was open for each holiday, for each, you know, each holiday had a show. <laughs> Wonder what they did for Boxing Day. That's not an American holiday, so it's fine. They didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because he found that writing a song about Christmas was the most challenging. Oh, so President's Day was an easier song to write? Oh, no. So I have something about that. I cut it out, but I will comment on it. Yikes. Oh, because it's bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know I stepped on a landmine. There, there is a President's Day one. And if you find an original copy, it's included. But 
for television, most of them cut it out. So let me get to that in a second. (laughs) Okay. Let me finish talking about the Christmas song. So Berlin found that writing a song about Christmas was actually the most challenging for him due to his Jewish upbringing. Which, again, I find this amusing because, like, Irving Berlin, like, yes, he has a lot of stuff. But then, like, later on, he's going to do the movie White Christmas. And I feel like he eventually wrote some other Christmas songs, probably. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. But whatever. Anyways, it's not about Irving Berlin. It's about Bing Crosby. Although White Christmas has become iconic, this was not the original intention. The song Be Careful It's My Heart played during the Valentine's Day section of the film was originally intended to be a bigger hit when production of Holiday Inn commenced. So it was kind of a surprise sneak attack hit that no one expected. The song is used during the Christmas holiday sections of the movie, most notably when it's introduced to Linda Mason, again played by Marjorie Reynolds, by Jim Hardy, Crosby, while she is trying to obtain a position in the shows at the inn. Hardy begins playing the song to her, allowing her to join him and eventually perform solo. The song is also reprised near the end of the movie. And I haven't done one in a while, so fun fact-ish. Chrysotile asbestos was utilized to make the fake snow used in this scene. (laughs) So it's Um, fun-ish fact. (laughs) To be fair, if you go back and watch... The Wizard of Oz, they also used asbestos for the uh, asbestos for the snow scene in the poppies. So I think that was like a common thing because they didn't realize, you know, oh, this can kill you if you breathe it. Because it was a different time. Yep. So um, before I continue with the popularity of White Christmas, LD and I on a sidebar mentioned a scene in Holiday Inn. So coming back to what they did for President's Day. Now, if you catch this movie on most television stations, this scene has been removed or song has been removed. I believe Turner Classic Movies still plays it intact, but I'm not sure. And you can purchase like intact versions. But because of, again, I'm going to say it was a different time because of the time period, because of the subject matter um, and because of current climate and how this is not okay anymore um that was removed or since been removed there is a scene i think it's like lincoln's birthday or something for president's day Mm -hmm. there's a song that is performed by someone in blackface oh dear following following the minstrel trend of the 20s and 30s okay So I can see why that was removed. Yeah. So it has since been removed from most like television airings at the very least. Moving on to happier things. Back to White Christmas because that that's a safe song. Crosby's record hit the charts on October 3rd, 1942 and rose to number one on October 31st, where it stayed for 11 weeks. So throughout the holiday season. A holiday perennial, the song was repeatedly re-released by Decca, charting another 16 times. It topped the charts again in 1945 and a third time in January 1947. The song remains the best-selling single of all time. Fun fact! That, that was also fun. Yeah. What you just said was fun. Oh yeah, it's all fun. But extra fun fact. According to Guinness World Records, the his recording... 
A White Christmas has sold over 100 million copies around the world with at least 50 million sales as singles. Yeah, I call that popular. Another fun fact. I have three fun facts on this song. So here we go. Another fun fact. Fun fact number two. And I kind of brought this up a little bit during our episode on our favorite Christmas songs. I briefly mentioned it. But here's the full fact. His recording was so popular that he was obliged to re-record it in 1947 using the same musicians and backup singers. The original 1942 master had become damaged due to its frequent use in pressing additional singles. Although the two versions are similar, the 1947 recording is what you generally hear today, like on the radio. So five years go by and there's so many pressings, he has to re-record it because the original recording is too damaged and too degraded to any longer produce pressings. Were you saying, though, that at some point, because it had degraded so much and he hadn't re-recorded it until 1947, that they had to fill it in with music? like they? So I think maybe where I'd heard it from maybe got it a little bit skewed and I repeated it, so I apologize. This is what I had found um, via the Wikipedia article, which from other fact checking that I have done with my fiance, some other things were very true. So I imagine this is correct. Okay, fair enough. Fun fact number three. In 1977, after Crosby died, because, you know, spoiler alert, it's rock and roll heaven. He, he, he gone. What? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what show have I been doing? I don't know. The song was re-released and reached number five in the UK singles chart. Crosby was... Dis- and here's what's kind of funny. Remember I told you when... He first heard it. He's like, okay, yeah, that song's fine. Whatever. He was dismissive of his role in the song's success, stating a jackdaw with a cleft palate could have sung it successfully. Okay, that's kind of cool. So he's putting the credit back to Irving Berlin and and the composition and the music, or the composition and the song that he wrote, you know, which is awesome of him. But it is still by far the most iconic rendition of the song. It's been covered a billion times. But his is. Yeah, so there's a reason why they're still playing it like 79 years later. Oh, yeah. It's iconic. (laughs) It's the version. I guess it's pretty good. Yeah, it's all right. (laughs) So that's my fun facts on the song. Crosby also charted 23 Billboard hits from 47 recorded songs with the Andrews sisters, whose Decca record sales were second only to his throughout the 1940s. And they had all those war anthems, right? Like the Well, Don't yeah, so the apple tree with anyone else but me. Like yeah, that. so they were his most frequent collaborators on disc from 1939 to 52. And they would sing together on the radio throughout the 40s and 50s. And they also appeared as guests on each other's shows and on Armed Forces Radio Service during and after World War II. So they were they both did a lot of a lot of shows for the war effort. During World War II, Crosby made live appearances before American troops in the European theater. He learned how to pronounce German from written scripts and read propaganda broadcasts intended for German forces. The nickname Derbingle was common among Crosby's German listeners and came to be used by his English-speaking fans. In a poll of U.S. troops... 
I think it's Der Binga. Der Bingel. <laughs> In a poll of U.S. troops at the close of World War II, Crosby topped the list as the person who had done the most for GI morale, ahead of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, General Dwight Eisenhower, and Bob Hope. Who was his like collaborator through I, a lot of that, by yeah, the way? I was going to say, like... Poor Bob Hope. So, the two presidents and literally the face of the USO? Yep. Holy cow. He did more, apparently. No shade on Bob Hope. We are going to no. do an episode on Bob Hope. Well, and I mentioned him very shortly here, too. So, you know. Yeah. And Bob and Bob and Bing were very close friends throughout their careers and and in real life. Like, very, very good friends. The June 18th, 1945 issue of Life magazine stated, America's number one star, Bing Crosby, has won more fans, made more money than any entertainer in history. Today, he is a kind of national institution. In all, 60 million Crosby discs have been marketed since he made his first record in 1931. His biggest bestseller is White Christmas, 2 million impressions of which have been sold in the U.S., and 250,000 in Great Britain. Nine out of ten singers and band leaders listen to Crosby's broadcast each Thursday night and follow his lead. The day after he sings a song over the air, any song, some 50,000 copies of it are sold throughout the U.S. Which, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's like overnight. That's today influencers. Yeah. Time and again, Crosby has taken some new or unknown ballad, has given it what is known in trade circles as the Big Goose and made it a hit single-handed overnight. Precisely what the future holds for Crosby, neither his family nor his friends can conjecture. He has achieved greater popularity, made more money, attracted vaster audiences than any other entertainer in history, and his star is still in the ascendant. His contract with Decca runs until 1955. His contract with Paramount runs until 1954. Records which he made 10 years ago are selling better than ever before. The nation's appetite for Crosby's voice and personality appears insatiable. To soldiers overseas and to foreigners, he has become a kind of symbol of America, of the amiable, humorous citizen of a free land. Crosby, however, seldom bothers to contemplate his future. For one thing, he enjoys hearing himself sing, and if ever a day should draw when the public wearies of him, he will complacently go right on singing to himself. In the wake of a solid decade of headlining mainly smash hit musical comedy films in the 1930s, Crosby starred with Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour in seven Road to musical comedies between 1940 and 1962, cementing Crosby and Hope as an on and off duo, despite never officially declaring themselves a team in the sense that like Laurel and Hardy or Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were teams. When they appeared solo, Crosby and Hope frequently made note of the other in a comically insulting fashion. They performed together countless times on stage, radio, film, and television, and made numerous brief and not-so-brief appearances together in movies. Crosby won an Oscar for Best Actor for his role of Father Chuck O'Malley in the 1944 motion picture Going My Way, and was nominated for his reprise of the role in The Bells of St. Mary's opposite Ingrid Bergman the next year becoming the first of six actors to be nominated twice for playing the same character. In October 1954, White Christmas would again make an appearance in Bing's life as the title and key song of another Irving Berlin film of the same name, starring Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and Vera Ellen Dean Jagger. 
Obviously, I'm talking about the film White Christmas now. Like, yay, one of my favorites. I used to watch it every year with my mom and my grandma at least once. So good. I will tell you right now, as most of our listeners know, I don't do Christmas movies, so I've never seen White Christmas. I've never seen It's a Wonderful (gasps) Life. And people are actually shocked because I don't actually ever remember watching a single Muppets movie, much less the Muppets Christmas Carol. So I'm a little behind. Okay, I'm really disappointed on the Muppets thing. But, I mean, I know you. I know you don't watch Christmas movies, so I'm not shocked at all. Especially because we've already discussed this. (laughs) And I made you listen to Snow after our Christmas songs episode. If you're not familiar with the movie, as LD isn't, I will briefly run down the opening synopsis for you. I'm assuming it's about Christmas. It takes place at Christmas. Hmm. Okay. It has Christmas themes. Okay. Yeah, I'm out. I'm already out. (laughs) But also has war themes. Ooh, I like war. (laughs) So the film came out in 1954, but it actually begins in 1944 on Christmas Eve. You look like you're going to say something. So it came out 15 years after the song did? Yes. No, 13 years. 13 years? Yeah. Okay. So the so the film actually opens on Christmas Eve in 1944, somewhere in Europe, during World War II. Two World War II U.S. Army soldiers, one a Broadway entertainer, Captain Bob Wallace, who was played by Bing Crosby, the other an aspiring entertainer, Private First Class Phil Davis, played by Danny Kaye. They perform for the 151st Division, which they're, they're their fellow troops. But word has come down that their beloved commanding officer, Major General Thomas F. Waverly, played by Dean Jagger. Oh, <laughs> Dean Jagger is a different person than Vera Ellen. So there you go. So it's not Vera Ellen, Dean Jagger. It is Vera Ellen and Dean Jagger. I love you, but we're keeping that part in. No, definitely do. <laughs> no, definitely do. Because I needed to correct myself from earlier. And I'm not going all the way back. Their beloved commanding officer, Major General Thomas F. Waverly, is being relieved of his command. He arrives for the end of the show and delivers an emotional farewell. After the war, Bob and Phil make it big in nightclubs, radio, and then on Broadway, eventually becoming successful producers. After the war, Bob and Phil make it big in nightclubs, radio, and then on Broadway, eventually becoming successful producers. They receive a letter from their mess sergeant from the war, asking them to look at an act that his two sisters are doing. Doing a favor for their mess sergeant, the two go to see the act. The brill- If you know the movie, it's a brilliant sisters song and act. It's great. And become smitten with the sisters. After some twists and turns, they all end up on a train to Vermont and stage a show at a sleepy little inn. Per the usual, there's romance, musical numbers, and pulled heartstrings that all amount to a classic holiday film. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. No. Oh, it's so good. I love it. Crosby also received critical acclaim for his performance as an alcoholic entertainer in December 1954 during the release The Country Girl and received his third Academy Award nomination. Such a happy holiday film. Or not. I don't know. I love how that one was released in December, and White Christmas was released in, like, October or something. Shortly before his death in 1977, he had planned another Road 2 film in which he, Hope, and L'Amour search for the Fountain of Youth. What is a Road 2? So there was a series of films that he did with Bob Hope and Dorothy L'Amour, 
They did seven of them. I mentioned it at the beginning. Yeah, before, I, I heard you like, say Christmas. that. And like, for those who don't know, I went to film school. So, so how do you I, not know these? I it apparently wasn't on the radar. I've just, I've never heard of the Road to franchise. So it's like Road to Hong Kong, Road to Utopia, Road to Rio, Road to Bali, Road to Hong Kong. Got it. Like, Got it. Okay. Basically, they get together and they travel somewhere and it's funny. Okay. But so then this last one that they were planning but did not ever get to film was the three of them going in search of the Fountain of Youth because by now he's like 74. And again, I mentioned earlier that he and Bob Hope were very close and very good friends in real life. In his 1990 autobiography, Don't Shoot, It's Only Me, Bob Hope wrote, Dear Old Bing, as we called him the economy-sized Sinatra, and what a voice. God, I miss that voice. I can't even turn on the radio around Christmas time without crying anymore. Because that's the thing. I mean, he's kind of like he had this whole huge career, but he's still really known for his Christmas music. So then, so we've talked about some of his music. We've talked about some of his movies. He also had a television career, although not as successful as his other branches of radio and recordings and film. The Fireside Theater in 1950 was his first television production. The series of 26-minute shows was filmed at Hal Roach Studios rather than performed live on the air. The telefilms were syndicated to individual television stations. He appeared countless times as a guest on the musical variety shows of the 50s and 60s, as well as numerous late-night talk shows with his own highly rated specials. Bob Hope memorably devoted one of his monthly NBC specials to his long intermittent partnership with Crosby titled On the Road with Bing. So again, On the Road. Crosby was associated with ABC's The Hollywood Palace as the show's first and most frequent guest host and appeared annually on its Christmas edition with his wife, Catherine, his second wife, and his younger children. And again, I'll touch on that briefly later. In the early 1970s, he made two late appearances on the Flip Wilson show, singing duets with the comedian. Bing Crosby Productions, affiliated with Desilu Studios and later CBS Television Studios, produced a number of television series including Crosby's own unsuccessful sitcom The Bing Crosby Show in the 1964-65 season with co-stars Beverly Garland and Frank McHugh. The company produced two medical dramas, Ben Casey and Breaking Point, and the popular Hogan's Heroes military comedy, as well as the lesser-known Slattery's People. I can imagine, though, like if he was doing like not only the circuit, but also having his own variety show, there were so so many variety shows of the 50s and 60s and that was like their peak time right exactly like he's he's doing all these different things so television career not quite as successful i mean it still sounds pretty darn successful it's it's better than anything i've done <laughs> right <laughs> so you know you're getting to see like as the years progress he builds on his career so he's not as much hustling and touring and radio and all this kind of still radio but he's kind of shifting into more entrepreneurship along with those endeavors. But he's he's carried a he's carried a career through every medium imaginable at this point. He's been in he's done the radio, he's done the albums, he's done film and he's done TV. I mean that that is he's got a career in literally every facet of the entertainment industry. He's done live theater. I mean, he's kind of done it all. You would think so. But now he's coming to the back end 
And it's actually Crosby's influence that drove some of radio and recording to where it is today. So essentially, and I cut a lot of this out, it is incredibly interesting, but it gets very long. And again, so we're keeping it to one episode and just the highlights. But briefly, basically Bing, with the new technologies that he had seen during his travels for the war and coming back, he wants to pre-record his radio shows. Because at the time, basically they had to do two shows every night. They had to do one for East Coast and one for West Coast. So if he did a radio show, he had to do two. And then sometimes things would get messed up or they'd have to ad lib lines, whether he maybe didn't want to goof. So he wanted to record so he could record longer and cut bits out that didn't work. And then he had one recording that would play for both broadcasts smart yeah incredibly smart yeah so he had seen he was working with somebody uh john t mullen on this who had seen these i think it's called magnetapes or something similar to that and i'm sorry i cut it out and now i can't remember the name of it but basically they're trying to develop this into existence and that's kind of where i'm picking up now it's like that's the background here of why he wants to do this. So Crosby influenced the development of the post-war recording industry. After seeing a demonstration of a German broadcast quality reel-to-reel tape recorder brought to America by John T. Mullen, he invested $50,000 in a California electronics company called Ampex to build copies. He then convinced ABC to allow him to tape his shows, which that was a battle. They didn't want him to pre-tape. They wanted to do it live. And he battled with them for like a year, at least on this. Wow. Like he was a trailblazer. He became the first performer to pre-record his radio shows and master his commercial recordings onto magnetic tape. Through the medium of recording, he constructed his radio programs with the same directorial tools and craftsmanship, editing, retaking, rehearsal, time shifting, used in motion picture production, a practice that became an industry standard. And hello has led to where we are right now. In this very room that we're sitting in. Mm-hmm. Pre-recording this. Highly editing, particularly <laughs> this episode. Retaking, particularly this episode, because I apparently can't talk tonight. She has the mush mouth tonight. I really do. So, and yeah. sniffles. Like, yeah, sorry. Kitties. But I do... I, I I love that. I find that fascinating. I do Cause, too. Because you don't ever think like, how did this get started? No, I love this too. And I, yeah, it just, it killed me to have to take a lot of that out because it was really interesting, but to preserve the direction I was trying to take the episode, it ultimately had to go. But I like that you figure out how to fit it in because that's so interesting to me. Oh like yeah. That stuff is, that's the kind of stuff I live for is like the new technology stuff. Even when it's old technology, but like, think about we wouldn't be sitting in this room if it wasn't for that. Are you ready for a fun fact? I am more than ready. So, because of this, fun fact! In 1948, Music Digest estimated that Crosby's recordings filled more than half of the 80,000 weekly hours allocated to recorded radio music. Holy cow! Because he was pre recording instead of having to do it all live. Man, <laughs> I had no idea about any of this so this is just all new and really interesting to me right i love learning that's why we have this podcast i (laughs) love learning i thought this was really really cool and i had no idea that he was a part of that 
Like, it was so cool. In addition to his work with early audio tape recording, he also helped to finance the development of videotape, bought television stations, bred racehorses, and co-owned the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team. (laughs) Yeah, he owned like 25% of the Pirates for a while until he passed away. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Nuts. Oh, and another fun fact to do with the horses, the racehorses, because he was big into thoroughbred racing. Bing was a founding member of the Del Mar Thoroughbred Club that included Charles S. Howard, the owner of a successful racing stable where Seabiscuit was from. I, I, I figured Seabiscuit was going to work into this. <laughs> you want to know something? You want to know an LD fun fact? Yes. I love horse racing. I think it's cool. I, um, I worry about the cruelty side of it. But well, okay. I, I stopped enjoy watching it. I stopped going to the races after like the third death at Santa Anita. And so then they yeah. shut it down and I, I won't until they make a change. I will not go back. But I like I kind of love gambling. Oh, yeah. That's and super fun. <laughs> it's, uh, and that's that's so much fun because it, it is kind of. It's kind of like my baseball. Like you just go, you get some food, you get something to drink. I don't drink, but like Coca-Cola is just as tasty as booze. You Says know? you. But I like trying to figure out the stats and like looking at the jockeys who are racing them and, you know, who's who's their trainer and, you know, and then like Bob Baffert was like a big trainer. So like if he had a horse in it and it was run by like Joe Talamo, then I was like, this is a winner. So... <laughs> So, yeah, bringing up horse racing. I do love horse racing, so I knew Seabiscuit was going to be somewhere in here. Oh, yeah. He was buddies. And actually, um, I'm assuming he ran at Hollywood Park at that point, right? Del Mar. Del Mar? Yeah. Okay. So, actually, guy that owned the stable where Seabiscuit was, Charles S. Howard, had a son, Lindsay Howard, clearly, who became one of Bing's really close friends and whom Bing named his fourth son after, who is Chip's dad. Oh, that's awesome. So in essence, Chip is the junior Lindsay named after Charles Howard's son. <laughs> so Chip is affiliated to Seabiscuit in four <laughs> I'm six degrees of separation. And four from degrees C-Biscuit. of separation. <laughs> he like Chip is like the Kevin Bacon of old Hollywood. He really is. I'm not. I'm not even kidding. So as I mentioned, I will now briefly touch on the wives and children. Crosby was married twice. His first wife was actress and nightclub singer Dixie Lee, who I mentioned earlier. He was married to her from 1930 until her death from ovarian cancer in 1952. They had four sons, Gary, twins Dennis and Philip, and Lindsay, Chip's dad. Yay. After his wife died, Crosby had relationships with model Pat Sheehan and actress Inger Stevens and Grace Kelly before marrying actress Catherine Grant. They had three children, Harry Lillis III, Mary, and Nathaniel. And now we have come to the sad final years of Bing's life. Following his recovery from a life-threatening fungal infection of his right lung in January 1974, Crosby emerged from semi-retirement 
to start a new spate of albums and concerts. In March 1977, after videotaping a concert at the Ambassador Auditorium in Pasadena for CBS to commemorate his 50th anniversary in show business, and with Bob Hope looking on, Crosby fell off the stage into an orchestra pit, rupturing a disc in his back, requiring a month in the hospital. Which, ouch. His first performance after the accident was his last American concert on August 16, 1977, which is the day Elvis Presley died. When the electric power failed during his performance, he continued singing without amplification. In September, Crosby, his family, and singer Rosemary Clooney began a concert tour of Britain that included two weeks at the London Palladium. While in the UK, Crosby also recorded his final album, Seasons. His last TV appearance was a Christmas special taped in London in September 1977 and aired weeks after his death. It was on this special that he recorded a duet of The Little Drummer Boy and Peace on Earth with rock star David Bowie. Love. You know there's no fight in there. That's my episode, right? Ah, I already... (laughs) I thought I already claimed him. No, I I claimed him because I've got like 18 books on David Bowie. I think I traded you Bowie for Prince. Fair enough. I like that. Like, they're like trading cards. All right. I'll take Mm. Kurt Cobain and you can have Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. (laughs) Mm. Their duet was released in 1982 as a single 45 RPM record and reached number three on, on the UK singles charts. It has since become a staple of holiday radio and the final popular hit of Crosby's career. At the end of the 20th century, TV Guide listed the Crosby-Bowie duet as one of the 25 most memorable musical moments of, the, of 20th century television. His last concert was in the Brighton Center on October 10th, four days before his death, with British entertainer Dame Gracie Fields in attendance. The following day, he made his final appearance in a recording studio and sang eight songs at the BBC Maida Vale Studios for a radio program which also included an interview with Alan Dell. Accompanied by the Gordon Rose Orchestra, Crosby's last recorded performance was of the song Once in a While. Later that afternoon, he met with Chris Harding to take photographs for the season's album jacket. On October 13, 1977, Crosby flew alone to Spain to play golf and hunt partridge. On October 14th, at the La Moraleja Golf Course near Madrid, Crosby played 18 holes of golf. His partner was World Cup champion Manuel Pinheiro. Their opponents were club president Cesar de Zulueta and Valentin Barrios. According to Barrios, Crosby was in good spirits throughout the day and was photographed several times during the round. At the ninth hole, construction workers building a house nearby recognized him, and when asked for a song, Crosby sang Strangers in the Night. Did he ask them to hold off on jackhammering till he got his shot in i don't know maybe they traded (laughs) (laughs) reportedly crosby's last words were that was a great game of golf fellas and then let's get a coke as he and his party headed back to the clubhouse at about 6 30 p.m crosby collapsed about 20 yards from the clubhouse entrance and died instantly from a massive heart attack oh wow that was that was fast yeah like no no prior issues like boom Bam. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. At the clubhouse and later in the ambulance, house physician Dr. I'm sorry, Dr. Layaseka tried to revive him but was unsuccessful. At Reina Victoria Hospital, he was administered the last rites of the Catholic Church and was pronounced dead. On October 18th, following a private funeral mass at St. Paul's Catholic Church in Westwood, Crosby was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. 
a plaque was placed at the golf course in his memory. So a few fun facts and legacy bits. He is one of 33 people, only 33 people, to have three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in the categories of motion pictures, radio, and audio recording. Which I think I mentioned that to you before, that Bing has multiples. He has three. I think you have. Mm -hmm. I like when we throw in if they have the the star on the Walk of Fame. I like that. He has three. (laughs) Show off. (laughs) Well, but... His career was so expansive, I'm actually surprised he only has three. I don't know how he could have any more than that, but, you know. I mean, he's got theaters named after him and and, oh, yeah. and the Pride of Gonzaga, and he's got three stars on the walk. I think he's doing okay. Yeah, he's fine. He's doing he, he's, fine. He's got a legacy. He's cool. Yeah, he's cool. <laughs> I know. I feel so stupid even reading off legacy. I'm like, Tom, he's Bing freaking Crosby. Hello. Calypso musician Roaring Lion, I love that, wrote a tribute song in 1939 titled Bing Crosby, in which he wrote, Bing has a way of singing with his very heart and soul, which captivates the world. His millions of listeners will, his millions of listeners never fail to rejoice at his golden voice. Bing Crosby Stadium in Fort Royal, Virginia, was named after Crosby in honor of his fundraising and cash contributions for his, for its construction from 1948 to 1950. In 1962, Crosby was given the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And I want to say something along the lines of, like, he was the first one to get one of these types of awards. And I'm sorry, everybody. I accidentally cut it out while I was trimming, and I had no idea where it went. So, it's my bad. gone, daddy, gone. It's gone. It's okay. I did my best. Well, without that one fact, uh, I mean, Bing just sounds like he's a, I mean, a louse. He's a layabout. I clearly screwed up this entire episode because I missed that one. And yep. it could be the same as this or it could not. I don't know. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. We're tired. I'm tired. In 2006, the former Metropolitan Theater of Performing Arts, or the Met, in Spokane, Washington, was renamed to the Bing Crosby Theater, which I kind of briefly mentioned earlier. In 2007, he was inducted into the Hit Parade Hall of Fame and in 2008, the Western Music Hall of Fame. On June 25th, 2019, the New York Times Magazine listed Bing Crosby among hundreds of artists whose material was reportedly destroyed in the 2008 Universal Fire. Remember when that article came out and we all got upset? Oh, yeah. I actually, you know what? Funny enough, I actually remember exactly where I was when that happened. I was in Pittsburgh doing a showcase for like young actors and I remember freaking out because oh, yeah. it was just there are and it's just coming out now finally because they were able to like figure out through catalogs and stuff what they actually missed major artists like Elton John and Aretha Franklin's masters are gone and Bing Crosby's yeah and it's it's one of the biggest losses in music in my opinion is no, losing those masters and you can never get those back it's just well there are pieces of history can like you can have copies and you can back up the catalog and all that to make sure that you have it and have preserved it but it's not the same as the original masters no and that's why i find it interesting when they put them in the salt mines oh yeah that i mean because I feel like the master master should be in the salt mines. Yeah, and if you guys don't understand, like, don't know what we're talking about, a lot of film preservation they actually keep them in salt mines because 
it absorbs moisture. And so it's it there it's temperature controlled, the moisture is controlled, and so the risk of it degrading over time due to atmospheric reasons is or does or random fires and disasters. Yeah, greatly decreases when you place them into and they're they're literal salt mines. So Yeah. They're that's what we're talking salt about. Mines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about when we talk about salt mines. Yeah. So to, so to wrap us up, Crosby's was among the most popular and successful musical acts of the twentieth century. Billboard magazine used different methodologies during his career, but his chart success remains impressive. 396 chart singles, including roughly 25 number one hits. Crosby had separate charting singles every year between 1931 and 1954. The annual re-release of White Christmas extended that streak to 1957. He had 24 separate popular singles in 1939 alone. He may have been the best-selling recording artist with up to 1 billion units sold. And that's with a billion, billion. Say that one more time. Billion. Billion. With a B. With a B. As in boy, as in bing, as in boy, oh boy, that bing. Yes. Billion. Billion. Statistician Joel Whitburn at Billboard determined that Crosby was America's most successful recording act of the 1930s and again in the 1940s. For 15 years, Crosby was among the top 10 acts in box office sales, and for five of those years, he topped the world. He sang four Academy Award-winning songs and won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in Going My Way, which I mentioned earlier. A survey in 2000 found that with over one billion, again, billion, with a B, movie tickets sold, Crosby was the third most popular actor of all time, just behind Clark Gable with 1.16 billion and John Wayne at 1.11 billion. The International Motion Picture Almanac lists him in a tie for second on the all-time number one stars list with Clint Eastwood, Tom Hanks, and Burt Reynolds. His most popular film, White Christmas, grossed $30 million in 1954. That is $280 million in current, in today's values. Like, And that's just in? That's just White Christmas. No, and that's just in 1954? Yes. Holy cow. Adjusted for inflation, that has to be... That's a lot of money. That's so, so... That's a stupid amount of that's money. That's probably better than the... One point one thousand dollars. Oh no 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 no. The <laughs> yeah, thirty million in nineteen fifty four. So that's about two hundred eighty million with inflation. So yeah, it it's a lot more than the one point one thousand dollars. The one point one thousand dollars. Yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> it's been a long day. He received twenty three gold and platinum records, according to the book Million Selling Records. And I will leave you with this final fun fact: the RIAA did not institute. It's gold record certification program until 1958 when Crosby's record sales were actually low. Before 1958, gold records were awarded by the record companies. Universal Music, owner of Crosby's DECA catalog, has never requested RIAA certification for any of his hit singles. So 23 gold and platinum records is actually pretty low compared to what it probably should be. But that's, that's the estimate by this book, Million Selling Records. Okay. Of what he would have. I don't know. Again, I I just work here. I don't know. <laughs> so very impressive career 
by Mr. Grasby. That was an awesome episode. I did not know any of that, and I didn't realize how much of a pioneer he was. How many, yeah, like how many things he had his like fingers in. I mean, that was that was impressive. Thank you for that. That's fun. You're very welcome. Hey, guess what? What? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Aw. Well, that's the end of the episode. And because we love you guys so much, there is going to be an episode on New Year's Day. And maybe, just maybe, if you're not on Santa's naughty list, maybe you'll get a very secret episode that we recorded in the Wayback Machine. So keep your ears out for that. So long ago. It was so long ago. Well... (laughs) Uh, we actually weren't allowed to release it because the artist that we interviewed was actually under contract uh, up until just recently. So we actually couldn't release the uh, the episode because we were too close to him being hot. So Oh, well, then there you go. Yeah, so we're really excited to bring you that, guys. Maybe, maybe we'll bring that to you if you're good. Uh, but it's actually our first interview with a live person other than Adam Todd Brown. So it was a really fun episode to record for us. So we're excited to bring that to you guys. But that's about it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for checking us out. We hope you all had a very happy and safe holiday. And especially heading into the new year, we will talk to you next week. And guys, uh, this holiday season, please remember Uber and Lyft are a thing don't drive under the influence. Your life is so important to us, and we, we want you guys to be safe this holiday season. So always choose a designated driver or use one of the rideshare programs. Or taxis are still a thing. Taxis are still a thing. but uh, My think... little tiny town doesn't have Ubers and Lyfts because there's not enough people to warrant <laughs> them. But we do have we still have taxis even in my tiny town. So there you go. Yeah. So being the holiday season... I'm actually not going to read our Patreon because I know that this time of year, you know, some people don't have that extra cash. And so we'll talk about our Patreon later. But you can find us on Twitter if you want to send us some Christmas love at Rock and Roll LT. We're on Facebook celebrating the season at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. It's a party over on Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Again, thank you guys. We love you so much. We hope that you have a wonderful holiday season no matter what you celebrate. And we will see you guys next week. Hey, TJ. Yeah. Is that mistletoe above your head? Nope. Dang it. You didn't even look. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. A white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear bells in the snow I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write may your day 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 